Heavenly Father, that is our cry to you today. We want to praise you forevermore. We thank you that we do have this opportunity to join together as brothers and sisters in Christ to be able to praise you through our singing, to be able to recall. I just love that song because it recounts how you died for us. You went to the cross, but you didn't stay dead. You rose from the dead. And because of your life, we have life, and we're going to have life eternal, God, and we do just praise you for that this morning. We give you abundant praise. Our songs are not enough. Our words are not enough. You are worthy of so much more than what we have to offer this morning. Father, you are so good that you have given us your word. As we've been studying this, these passages in Revelation, Lord, where you give a direct um, word to your church, Lord, I pray that as we prepare to open up your word, that we would have humble hearts this morning. I know that for many of us, we came into this room and we've come from a busy week. Some of the people I know are, have been traveling this week. Some are tired because of the time change. Some have heavy burdens on their souls, Lord. Some come in this week with great joys that they are celebrating and praising you for. But regardless, Lord, of how we come into this room, I pray that our corporate response to your word would be humility. That as you speak to us today, God, that we would have changed hearts, that we would not set our minds on the things that do not matter, but instead that we would set our minds on your word. Help us to respond in the way that you've called us to respond today. I thank you in advance for what you will do in this time together. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray together. Amen. You may be seated. As you find your seat, go ahead and grab a Bible. If you brought a Bible, wonderful. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one in the pew seat in front of you or maybe under your chair. Um, but today we're going to be in the very last book, continuing our study. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, and go ahead and go to verse 18, okay? Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. If you have not been with us over these last few weeks, we are at the midpoint in our study of seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation. And what we find in the book of Revelation is that Jesus himself comes and he gives an assessment of how these churches are doing. All seven of these churches would proclaim that they know God, that they serve him, that they love Jesus. And yet Jesus comes and he shows them what's really going on within their congregations. If you look at the screen, you're going to see the seven names and the seven locations of those churches. Now, I realize that as you look at those names and you look at these cities that are now in modern day Turkey... It's hard for us to connect with these ancient cities that, for the most part, do not even exist to this day. Out of the seven churches, the only city that still exists is Smyrna, and that's modern-day Izmir. But other than that, they're all gone. And so I realize it's hard for us to get a feel for what's going on in these cities. And so as I was working through the, the just reading through these seven churches again, I thought it might be helpful to give you some California modern-day counterparts to these cities, okay? So I'm going to do that real quick over the ones that we've gone over. Week one, if you remember, we started with Ephesus. That's number one. As you can see, Ephesus is right on the sea. And what you find is that as you study Ephesus, it's if, if you were having a counterpart to California, Ephesus would be San Francisco. It would be our great city. 
When you came to Ephesus, you would experience a mix of cultures, a mix of religions, all these different moving parts, living and working and and relating with one another. That was Ephesus. It was the hub of the region for entertainment. It was the hub of the region for travel. It was kind of located a strategic location. And so people from all over the world would come through Ephesus. And it was a hub of commerce, very much like San Francisco. Ephesus was the it city of this region, much like San Francisco is for California today. If you move on week two, we looked at Smyrna. And Smyrna, as you can see, is is north of Ephesus. And it too was a very important city in that day. It was a large city. It was a, also a, a great amount of entertainment, a great amount of travel. It was, it was a very influential city in this region. Uh, if you remember, though, what Smyrna was known for, at least in the book of Revelation, is that the Christians there were enduring severe persecution. They were going through suffering. And so for our purposes today, I would say Smyrna would be uh, closest probably to Los Angeles, an important city, a big city. But any city that has the Dodgers, the Lakers, and the Clippers (laughs) has to be considered suffering. Am I correct? So that would be Smyrna. Last week, we looked at Pergamum. And Pergamum was the capital city. So, of course, what would that be? Sacramento. When you go to Sacramento, you find these big government buildings that are representative of worldly power, of of human strength. In the same way that when you go to Pergamum, you would have found those same buildings. Politicians were throughout Pergamum. It was a very political city. With all these in mind, as we come today to the church at Thyatira, you wonder, what do we need to be thinking? Well, in your mind, here's what you need to have in your head. Fresno. Okay? Fresno. Thyatira was not your vacation destination. It was not the place that you booked for your honeymoon. Thyatira was a working class city full of very ordinary people that were having very ordinary jobs. In many ways, out of all these seven locations, Thyatira is the the least influential. It's the least strategic of all of these seven cities. But here's what I want you to see today as we come to this passage. Jesus reserves his longest assessment for this church, the church at Thyatira. Now, that struck me this week because here's what that tells us. It does not matter the size or the, the, the amount of influence from the world's perspective that a church has. Jesus cares about the health of every church. No matter if it's a large church, if it's a small church, whether it's in a strategic city or a a working class city, Jesus cares deeply about the spiritual health of his church. And as the pastor and shepherd of all these churches, Jesus is the only one worthy to look at these churches and give an assessment that really matters. And so what would this assessment for this working class church be? Let's read it together. We're in Revelation chapter 2. Verse 18, it says this, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. 
that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into the great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and the one who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God this morning. Now, by this point in our study, you're probably noticing something that happens in these letters that Jesus gives to these different churches. Although it is the same Jesus that is assessing each of the churches, at the beginning of the assessments, what Jesus does is he is described in a different way. Have you noticed that? That's not a coincidence. The way that Jesus is described at the beginning of every one of these assessments, in essence, paints a picture of what the rest of the letter is going to be like. So, for instance, if you remember the church at Smyrna, the church at Smyrna was experiencing severe persecution. They were on death's door. And so what does Jesus say to them? I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who died, but what? But defeated death and lives again. That's how he was described. And so as you read that, you could tell from the very beginning, this is going to be an encouraging word. To these Christians who are about to die for their faith, he already is painting this picture of encouragement. He's saying, hold fast because I am alive and so will you, even if you experience death. The description of Jesus matched the message. That's what happens in every single one of these letters. And so when you come to this one today, what do you read? The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So what do you think? Is this going to be an encouraging message or is it going to be a rebuke? From the very beginning, we see it's a very somber tone. It would be like if you're on an airplane and the pilot comes on and he says, fasten your seatbelt. What do you know? Turbulence is coming. It's that same way when you see this description of Jesus, it tells us two things about Jesus that this church needed to be reminded of. And I'm going to allow these two things to kind of guide everything that we do as we look at this passage. So the first thing, what does it say? It says that Jesus sees all. When it describes Jesus, who is he? He is one with, light, with eyes like a flame of fire. Now, why would he describe Jesus as one with eyes like a flame of fire? Think about a fire. When a fire enters into a household and it takes up a household, is there anything that's untouched by that fire? Of course not. When a fire is unhindered, it goes throughout the house. It touches every bit of furniture. It touches every room. It touches every closet. There's nothing untouched by fire. And so what Jesus is saying is this. My eyes see everything. There's nothing that happens in all of my creation that goes unseen by me. 
Now, that's important for us individually if you think about it. What that means is that there's no corner of our lives hidden from his sight. He sees our habits in the workplace, right? Students, he sees your habits there at school. He sees the way that we interact with one another. He sees the way we treat our spouses, how we treat our parents, how we treat our roommates, how we treat our coworkers, and even that barista down the corner. He sees it. He sees our actions on Saturday night in the same way that he sees our Sunday morning religious observance. Jesus sees all. By this point, almost all of us in this room are very good at hiding, right? Uh, we've, we've learned that we can hide. If we smile, if we say the right things, then people aren't going to figure out what's really going on in our heart. But that, that's not the case with Jesus. What does he say? He knows the mind and the heart. Jesus sees everything. I want you to consider this passage for just a moment. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If you would, just leave that on the screen for a moment. Have you thought about that? There is no creature hidden from his sight. All of our lives are exposed before him. He sees our deepest thought. He sees our motivations. He sees everything. But not only is that true of us individually, but he says to this church, it's also true of your churches. I see you as you gather for worship. I see your worship. He looks at these churches and he says, I see the way that you handle my word. I see the way that you either love or don't love one another. I see the way that you use your finances and the way that you steward together your time and your resources. I see the way that you minister to San Francisco or minister to the world. I see all. Have you spent any moments this week thinking about this reality that Jesus sees it all? That there is nothing in your life, there's nothing in life itself that is hidden from his sight. Now that is either a very encouraging thought for some of you this morning, or to some of us that may be a very uh, discomforting thought. But on the one hand, think about it this way. If you truly love Jesus, if he is your king, if he is your Lord, if he is your ultimate treasure and you know him, you're growing in a relationship with him, then this fact that Jesus sees everything is a real comfort. Because why? It means that there's no act of love, there's no act of faith, there's no act of sacrifice or service that goes unseen. And that's what he says to the church at Thyatira. He says, he says I see all, which means this, I see the good. Look at verse 19. I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. When he looks at this congregation, he looks at many of them and he says, I see the way that you're growing. They are totally different than the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus had had turned from their first love, but that wasn't the case with this church. They were growing in their love. They were growing in their service. They were growing in their faith. And Jesus, from the very beginning, he looks at them and he says, I see you. I see you. I see your growth. I see your faith. Now, this morning, as I was studying this text, I could not help but realize, I believe that there are many of you in this room that you need to hear this from Jesus. He is looking at you this morning and he is saying, I see you. To some of you who are junior high and high school students and you are the only Christian in your class. You're the only Christian among your group of friends. And it makes you look odd at times. 
and yet you remain faithful. Jesus says to you, I see you. To those of you who are, who are moms and you're giving of yourself sacrificially, or maybe you're dads and you're giving yourself sacrificially for your family, but in the midst of a lot of throw up in your house, in the midst of un, unceasing demands, you wonder, does anybody see my sacrifices? Do they see my steadfastness, my endurance? Jesus says, I see you. There's some of you in this room that are elderly. You used to be able to do a lot of ministry. You used to be able to serve. And yet now you're at this place where all you can really do is pray. And you wonder, is that enough? Jesus says, I see you. It does not matter how great the act of obedience this morning. If you are growing in your faith, Jesus is here. And he's saying, I see your growth. And I commend you for that growth. I praise you for that growth. I see the good. Take that this morning. But friends, we also see in this text that if Jesus sees all, not only does he see the good, but what? He also sees the bad. He sees the area of weaknesses in our life, and he sees the area of weaknesses in our churches. Look at verse 20. He says this, I see all these good things, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, when you read that, it's easy to think, well, goodness, our church is off the hook then. I don't think we have any prophetesses that are teaching people to eat food sacrificed to idols. Thank goodness we're good. But it's important that we slow down for a moment this morning. What is the key to this? What's the real problem for the church at Thyatira? Well, I think it really comes down to this idea that they tolerate this woman in the Bible called Jezebel. Now, if you've studied the Old Testament at all, what you will find is that Jezebel is the notorious wife of Ahab, who was king of Israel about a century after King David. Like the names Cain or like the name Judas, Jezebel was a name that virtually no one would name their child because of the person that first bore it in the Old Testament. I mean, think about this. Even today, 2,000 years later, the name Jezebel does not even break the top 5,000 of new baby girl names, right? I don't think we have any baby Jezebels. If we do, it's still a great name. Well done. But at that time, it would have been even worse. In the Old Testament, the name Jezebel was, was seen as a, as a very evil name, a very evil person, right? It would be like me coming into the hospital and you introducing me to your precious new son named Hitler. It'd be like, no, that just does not go, okay? That's the picture of Jezebel. So I don't think it's likely that this person in the congregation was actually named Jezebel. So why would Jesus call this person Jezebel? I think it points to what this person was doing. When you go to the Old Testament in the book of 1 Kings, you find that when Jezebel married Ahab, who was again king of Israel, she exerted such an evil influence that the entire nation of Israel began to go into Baal worship. She seductively drew all of Israel into the worship of all the surrounding pagan gods. Slowly but surely, she brought on this worship. She was crafty in the way that she did it. And so she became a symbol of this seductive form of evil that begins to infiltrate God's people. So when Jesus calls this person in the church at Thyatira Jezebel, what he's saying is this person is doing something very similar to the first Jezebel. 
They are influencing the church to believe that they could mix their love for Jesus Christ with friendship with the world. That those two things could go together and they they didn't affect one another. With this new Jezebel, you could have it all. You could have salvation. You could have Jesus. You could have heaven right alongside idol worship, acceptance from the world, guilt-free sex. Pretty good deal for that church. She convinced many in the church that what they did with their body, especially when it came to the feast that they were attending and the sexual immorality that was pervasive in their city, that what they did with their body was not connected to their relationship with God. They could do whatever they want and still be intimate with Jesus Christ. Now, why would this teaching be seductive? You think they would see through that. But you need to understand something about Thyatira. You have to remember that Thyatira was a working-class city, and we've talked a little bit about this, but especially in Thyatira, there were these things that were called trade guilds. Trade guilds were like our modern-day trade unions, and yet they were even more powerful than our modern-day trade unions. If you wanted to work, you had to be in a trade guild. Now, where this got tricky for Christians is that these trade guilds, if you were going to be connected in some way with a trade guild, it also meant that you had to be connected in some way with idol worship. If you were a Christian metal worker, you were a Christian carpenter, you were a Christian potter, if you, if you were part of these trade guilds, these trade guilds would meet in these pagan temples. And right alongside their business that they took care of, they also had worship to these pagan deities, which also included sexual perversion. In Thyatira, it all came as one big package. You couldn't say, I'm going to be part of the trade guild, but I'm not going to to worship that God. They, Christians, had to make a choice. And so you can see how this would be very enticing for the Christians in Thyatira. To hear that there was a teaching, a secret, that was outside what God had said, that, that they could go and do whatever they want. They could eat whatever they want. They could go to these feasts. They could go to the pagan temple. They could be involved in sexual immorality and still be good with Jesus. That what they did with their body didn't really matter. It didn't influence their relationship with Christ. Well, Jesus steps into this living where these Christians had begun to make little compromises. They said, well, maybe I'll just eat that food this once. Maybe I'll just attend that pagan festival just this once. Maybe I'll just have sex this once. This can't be a big deal. Jesus comes into their midst and he says, I have this against you, that you are a church that tolerates sin, that is compromising with sin. That word tolerate means to allow or to permit, to condone something without interference. I heard this from one of my friends this week, and it it really just stuck with me. He said this, you cannot expect to date sin and experience intimacy with Jesus. I thought that was powerful. It's a great picture. You cannot expect to date sin and have intimacy with Jesus. I am so thankful for my marriage. But if I go out and say, Rachel, I would like to go and date other women and still have intimacy with you, what's Rachel going to say? Um, I don't think so. It doesn't work like that. Jesus looks at his church and he says, I will not tolerate sin within my church. This idea that we can ignore or dismiss God's clearly revealed law, that we can be unholy in our lives and still be okay with him, it's just as enticing today as it was in their day. 
all of us are drawn into this. I mean, as I was reading this week, I, don't, I just want you to know when, when we prepare these sermons, we are not preparing them for you. We know that unless God does something first in our heart, we aren't ready to speak to you. And this week, as I was reading this, God began to reveal these things, these little areas where I've compromised with sin, where I'm tolerating it. I, I think this isn't that big of a deal, that God doesn't care that much. I wonder about you this morning. If you say that you're a follower of Jesus, are there any areas where in your heart you know I'm tolerating sin? I'm permitting it. I'm condoning it. I'm, I'm compromising with it. It's not that big of a deal. Maybe for some of you it comes in this area that's mentioned here in the area of sex. You know that sex is a gift given from God in the boundaries of marriage, and yet you're living outside of that. And you think, well, this is not a big deal. This does not affect my relationship with Jesus. Jesus says otherwise. Or maybe some of you, what, what little compromises have you made in the workplace? Or maybe what compromises have you made with exaggerating the truth? Or I thought about this, that we're in the middle of tax season. What little things don't matter? What areas of pride, what areas of unforgiveness or bitterness are in our hearts? We know they're there. Maybe even this morning, Jesus is revealing those things. And we think, but that can't really affect my relationship with Jesus. Let me say it again. You cannot date sin and experience intimacy with Jesus. He says, I will not tolerate that within my church. Friends, where that is happening, you need to know something. Not only does Jesus see, but let's go back to that description of Jesus at the very beginning. That not only does he see all, but Jesus judges all. That's what this second description of Jesus is about. Let's go back to it says, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and what? And whose feet are like burnished bronze. That is a picture of strength. It is a picture of power. And ultimately, it is a picture of feet like burnished bronze. It is a picture of judgment over those who would ignore what Jesus would have to say. Those in rebellion toward him. He says, I'm coming with feet like burnished bronze. In Revelation 19.15, I want you to listen to this description of Jesus. Okay, listen. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God, the Almighty. Now, when I read that, that may be alarming to some of you. If your only picture of Jesus is, is from the shack, that movie or the book, if your only picture of Jesus is this perfectly manicured Jesus with a lamb and a child smiling, you're missing some of the Bible's picture of Jesus. It's not an either or. Jesus is loving. He is compassionate. He is merciful. He is all those things. But at the very same time, he is holy. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one that will come and tread the winepress of the wrath of God on evil. He is a just judge that will bring judgment to sin. And this passage makes clear Jesus was about to bring a righteous judgment on this false teacher and everyone who had taken on her teaching. Read verse 22. It says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to to your works. Don't miss that. I will give to each of you according to your works. 
Now, when it's talking about Jezebel's children, it's not talking about physical children. Um, in essence, what it's talking about are those people who are living out Jezebel's teaching, that have taken it to heart, and they're saying, well, we can live however we want. In the same way, those that are committing adultery with Jezebel, that's not talking about physical adultery. It's talking about spiritual adultery. They are forsaking their first love. They're forsaking Jesus in order to live and love the world, in order to live like the world, to worship the things that the world worships instead of worshiping Jesus. And Jesus warns them a severe judgment is coming. But at the same time, I do not want you to miss out on the grace that is evident in this passage. You may think, well, goodness, Ryan, this Jesus that you're speaking of, I mean, he's, he's harsh. He's bringing judgment. I would say, yes, he will bring judgment to sin. But do not miss the grace here. What? That he gives them this opportunity to repent. In verse 21, it already said that he had given Jezebel that opportunity. It says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. Verse 22 says, I'm bringing judgment unless what? Unless they repent. You see, through the word of God and likely through discussions with other church members, he had given these Christians many opportunities to turn. Through his Holy Spirit, he had probably brought to mind the areas that they were tolerating sin in their own hearts. They were brought to mind those areas where the church was tolerating sin, but at this point they had refused to turn to him. And yet what? Jesus was patient. He was giving them opportunity. He was giving them time to turn from this sin and turn back to him. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Friends, you need to know this morning, if Jesus has used this passage to to show you something in your heart, if he's showing you something right now, if he's speaking to you, he's highlighting that area of tolerating sin or compromising with sin, he's doing it for your good. He's not doing it because he's against you. He's not doing it because he wants to judge you. No, he's highlighting these things so that what? We will repent. And that repent, that word just means to do a 180, to turn from our sin and to run back to him. He knows that when we compromise with sin, what we're really compromising is the abundant life that he has promised every single one of us. That's the compromise we're making. The real question is this, church family, do you believe that Jesus has your best interest in mind? What you do with your sin is the answer to that question. Do you believe that Jesus really does want you to have an abundant life, to experience security, to experience joy and peace and patience, to experience abundant life? If you do, then I tell you this. When he highlights a sin in your life, it's because he wants you to repent and find all those things in him. Jesus this morning loves you right where you're at. It doesn't matter how great or how small your sin is. He loves you right where you're at, but he loves you enough not to leave you there. He wants you to turn. He wants you to embrace him and find life this morning. They were tolerating sin. But he ends with a very encouraging note to those who aren't tolerating sin. To those who choose to repent of their sin. To those who trust in him. He says this in verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not what some call the deep things of Satan, 
To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give to him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What he says is this. For those of you who are walking with Christ, for those of you who are holding fast to what he has done in your life, he just says what? He says, continue holding fast until I come. Hold fast to what? What he's saying in essence is hold fast to me. Hold fast to me. Jesus had already provided their forgiveness through what he accomplished on the cross. He's saying, you find life, you will find it in me. Hold fast to what I've given you. Hold fast to the gospel. That you're not saved by your own works. That you will never be saved by your own works. But that you are saved through faith in him alone. By what he did on the cross. Hold fast to that. He says, if you hold fast, you will get what? You will get more of me. That's in essence what Jesus says at the end of every single one of these things. That picture of the morning star, Jesus later in Revelation is called the morning star. He's saying, you know me now to a certain extent. But to the one who overcomes, to the one who holds fast to the gospel, to the one who holds fast to my word and lives for me, you will get all of me for eternity. And not only will you get all of me, but you will rule with me. For all of eternity, you will rule with me. Now, what does that mean? I tried to think all this week, what does that promise mean for us? There's not words that I think can really describe what Jesus is talking about here, but the best I could come up with is a picture of a a ruling king in the Old Testament. Uh, Many of you will probably remember there was a king named Solomon, David's son. And during King Solomon's reign, Israel experienced tremendous peace. There was security, there was joy. He was a strong king. He had everything he could ever desire. Solomon was a picture of the king, even with all of his flaws. But his kingdom was one of peace. It was one of security. It was one of strength. Well, at one point, the the king Solomon, he invites this foreign diplomat, Queen Sheba, to see the kingdom. And I just want you to listen to what she says when she sees his kingdom. And I want you just to think to yourself, what will the kingdom of heaven be like? What will we be like? What will we do? What will my response to, to ruling with Christ for all eternity, what will that be like? I think it will look something like Queen Sheba. It says this. And when the Queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food at his table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers and their clothing, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. Her response to King Solomon was this, happy are your wives, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and with your wisdom. Friends, I don't know what it will be like to rule with Christ. I can't tell you exactly what that will be like, but I will tell you this, if we could only see the house that he has built, if we will only see the food at his table, We were only to know the justice and righteousness which we will experience. The joy of of being his bride, to being the church, his forever bride. The the security of being his servants in his kingdom. I think we would join Sheba in that experience of I just lost my breath. 
It's beyond words what it means to be with Jesus and to rule with him for eternity. But he says, if you hold fast to me, that is my promise to you. As we close, Jesus' wake-up call to this church is now his wake-up call to us. Jesus sees all, which means he sees the good. It also means he sees the bad, and he judges accordingly. As he looks at our church, I wonder, what will he see? Will he see a church that tolerates sin, that refuses to, to practice church discipline, where the church members, even when they see one another in sin and, and going down destructive paths, we just are tolerated. We're like, oh, we'll just not touch that. Or we, we, see, we see a church that is holding fast to him. This morning, as Jesus looks into the deep recesses of your own heart, as he looks at your actions, as he looks at your heart condition, your motives, what will he see? Will he see one who is tolerating, compromising with sin? Or will he see one who is choosing daily to repent and to hold fast to him? My prayer is that we will be a church that refuses to date sin and instead experience tremendous intimacy with Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, there are so many times in your word where we open it and we find words of comfort and encouragement. We find words of hope. But Lord, I'm thankful that you as our Lord and our Savior, that you that are looking out for our good, you, you don't just give us those words, but you also bring rebuke where rebuke is needed. And Father, I know this week as I've looked in my own heart, I've searched my own mind, my own actions, I know there are areas where I've tolerated sin, where I've made compromises, thinking, well, that won't really be a big deal. But Lord, you are a holy God. And so this morning, I bring my own things to your feet, repenting of those things and turning to you for forgiveness. I pray for that this congregation, this moment of of quiet in this moment of prayer, that we would allow your all-knowing eye, your all-searching eye to examine our hearts this morning. And I pray that the, your Holy Spirit would bring to light things that, that are areas that we're tolerating sin. And I pray that in that moment, when you bring that to mind, we won't run from you, but instead that we will repent, that we will turn to you and receive the forgiveness that is abundantly available, the grace to fight that sin. I pray that many people will bring their sin to light, whether it's in conversations with other Christians in this room, whether it's with one of our pastors or deacons, but that you would do the work of restoring the intimacy that we've had with you. For those in this room that may not know you, Jesus, I pray that this morning they would see that their sin separates them from you that you are a holy God. You do love them, but you're holy. And that their sin has to be forgiven. It has to be taken away if they're going to have relationship with you. I pray this morning that they would receive what you have provided through the cross, that in the cross you took the punishment that they deserved so that they could have a relationship with you again. I pray that they would receive that gift of forgiveness this morning and they'd walk with you. Church family, we're going to have a time of response. And this is just a time for you to pray. 
We know in the busyness of a week, you don't have much time for just quiet of being alone with God. And so ask him to examine your heart. Is there any area where you're tolerating sin? And then I would ask that you not just confess it, but that you truly repent. That you turn from it. That you take an action step against that sin, even today. Spend this time in prayer. I'll come and close this here in just a moment.